Hey, everybody. I am really psyched about today's show. We've got an interview with a woman named uh, Diana Merriam. She is the host of the Optimal Finance Daily podcast, and she also started her own conference for people in the FIRE movement called the Economy M-E, conference. Um, we cover a lot of ground in our conversation, including some really important concepts relating to the psychology of money, saving, spending, and retirement. Um, she's super smart. She's really cool, and I think we could all learn a few things from her. I've uh, put links to her conference and her podcast in the show notes, so be sure to check them out. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. So let's do this. Diana, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Now, you are a podcaster. I have I've subscribed to your podcast. First off, just tell me a little bit about your podcast and what kind of the, your goals are and who your ideal audience is. Sure. So Optimal Finance Daily is the daily podcast that I host, and it's a narration style podcast. So I'm basically reading you a blog post from Personal Finance Blogger. We have about 200 contributors, and then I'm offering you a little bit of commentary on it for 10 minutes or less every single day. So what's cool about the show is that, you know, personal finance is really personal, and you get to hear from so many kind of conflicting opinions. Um, you know, right right now, I feel like we're on a string of articles about like, you should buy a house, you shouldn't buy a house, or, you know, it's like stuff like that. Or you should pay off your mortgage, you shouldn't pay off your mortgage. Um, you should pick a target date fund, you shouldn't t- pick a dar- target date fund. You know, I just went through a, a string of uh, conflicting articles. But yeah, it's a great show. We get about half a million downloads per week. So it is like a pretty popular podcast. Um, It's been around for, I want to say probably about seven, eight years now, but I've been the host for the past two years. So previously the producers just paid a voice actor to read these articles and they were looking for someone that could add a little bit of commentary. And so I got the gig and it's a pretty sweet gig because I'm just like a voice actor and right. I get to, to, you know, leave some commentary about personal finance, but the producers really select all of the articles. Um, I get, you know, veto rights if they pick a really bad article or I, I've brought in about 30 contributors to the show. Oh, wow. Um, you know, to, to try to, you know, again, keep expanding the voices that, that we're reading. Um, but they do all of the editing, the production, the distribution, they do like all of the hard work. I just get to have fun in front of a microphone. So it's a pretty sweet gig. That's awesome. So, okay. So as long as we're talking about this, um, what's the best, um, argument that you've heard to pay off your house? Okay. If, if, if we Mm. say we've had, historically 5,000 year low mortgage rates, someone's at Mm -hmm. 3%. Is there an argument for them still to pay off their mortgage? I like to think of it as what is your house in relation to your overall net worth? Okay. Right. So like, I don't want to have more than 10% of my net worth in a tangible asset, right? Because it's hard to get your money out of that. Yeah. You can do a home equity loan or you've got to sell the house, right? For me, like the past couple of years, I switched to self-employment. No one was going to give me a home equity line of credit. Right. right? And so I I don't want to have that much money sitting in my house. I would rather be putting the bulk of my income into income producing assets, um, which for me is low fee total market index funds. Gotcha. Yeah. So I'm not opposed to paying off your house. I think for a lot of people, it 
it makes them, you know, it helps them sleep at night to not have that debt. And I may ultimately do that, you know, maybe in five years, 10 years, depending on what my overall net worth looks like. Um, you know, just like when you're looking at your investment portfolio, you don't want to put too much of your eggs in one basket. And I think a lot of middle-class America is putting the bulk of their money in their house and getting a little bit stuck that way because they're following Dame Ramsey or whoever. But right. yeah, I, again, it's personal finance is really personal. So it, it just depends. Gotcha. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I like that you mentioned Dave Ramsey because he is such a proponent of it, regardless of whether it makes you sleep at night better, regardless of whether mm -hmm. you could be getting far better returns, regardless of wh whether you got a 2% loan that may never happen again in human history. Right. Um, uh, that kind of prescription based on, on dogma is to me a, a bad way to teach personal finance. So I like, totally, and I'm, I'm very anti Ramsey on that just simply because in general, you can always do better than two or 3% overall returns over time. So why would you lock your money into an illiquid, highly illiquid asset such as a home, uh, when you could having it be work working for you? So I totally agree with that. I've heard the counter argument to that point you just made, mm -hmm. which I don't disagree with, but for most people that are really intimidated by investing, where they're actually not going to take that difference and invest it the way you or me would, it's probably better for them to pay off their house, well, right? Because yeah. if you're not investing it anyway, then you might as well be putting it into some asset, but it's not optimal. It's right, not optimal. Right. So, and to, yeah, and to totally those agree. people, I would say, if you dedicated an hour a week for six months mm -hmm. to teaching yourself personal finance or reading a book or listening to podcasts yep. or just doing something to raise your, you know, just use that intellectual curiosity that you may not be using when you mm -hmm. say, I won't invest, learn about investing, then you could do better. Even, I mean, hell, you could buy a, a, one of those shady annuities from, from your insurance agent and do better than 2%. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. but anyway, yeah, I mean, so I, I'm, I find the, the arguments fascinating and I love the stuff. So anyway, the, once again, the podcast is called, uh, Op optimal finance daily, correct? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Love it. So you also started a, a conference about yes. personal finance. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So it's called the Economy Conference. Economy with an M-E at the end, not an M-Y, because I think I'm so clever. <laughs> um, but yeah, this conference is basically a party about money. Um, oh. It is rooted in the FIRE movement, which yep. for those who um, may not be familiar, stands with stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And that is the movement that really changed my whole relationship with money. And so I saw a real opportunity to create an event and bring people together face to face because there's a huge online community for this. Right. If you're interested to learn about FIRE and interact with people on FIRE, you know, you you can find them online, but that's just not my style. I I much prefer what we're doing right now, talking face to face, and even yep. in person is even better. And so, the event was actually inspired um, by another event that I love that I was just at a couple weeks ago called World Domination Summit. Whoa, which sounds cool crazy, name. like it's you know produced by Pinky and the Brain or something like that, right? Um, but I discovered 
that event, uh, the first time I went was in 2017. And every time I would go to that event, I would leave feeling like my life was so full of possibility because I was surrounded by such expansive minded people. And I wanted to create that feeling for other people specifically about money. And that's really how the economy conference was born. Um, some people have called it like the TED Talks of the FIRE movement because we do have main stage speakers who are talking about the pursuit of financial independence from a lot of different angles. Okay. But then we also are doing workshops and breakout sessions and a lot of social um, activities because there's a ton of knowledge in the room, not just people up on stage, but about 20% of our audience um, from the last event is already financially independent and retired. Oh, and wow. so they just wow. love the community. They love to mentor people. I mean, this community to me is the most like creative, generous community I've ever been a part of. And so, um, wow. you know, it's, it's, to me, economy is very much about community and inspiration. And also, what's the point of reaching financial independence and retiring early if you have no one to hang out with? I think FI is better with friends. And right. so I know for me, my best friend that, you know, I go long distance hiking uh, every week with her. We go float down the Miami River on a lazy Tuesday because what else do you do when you're fun employed? <laughs> and uh and she's she quit her job like a couple years before me. She's the only person I know that has full autonomy over her time. Wow. And I met her because of the economy conference because she came and then she contacted me afterwards and we, we became great friends. And so I just I strongly believe in community. I really think that the people you surround yourself with matter a lot. And I wanted to create an opportunity for you to like find your people. That, that sounds awesome. So in the fire movement, there are a whole lot of, I, I would say the majority of people that I read about in the fire movement are very focused on kind of a um, simple path to wealth approach, mm -hmm. a, yeah. an index fund. What's the author of that book? Um, uh, J.L. Collins. Co yeah, J.L. Collins. Great book. Yep. Great book. And, and again, and go going back to people who don't invest, if you read The Simple Path to Wealth, that to me, can turn you into a pretty savvy investor because, you know, the VT Sachs, you can invest in there for the rest of your life and do just yeah. great. So, yep. but, and that seems to be a foundational headspace in the, in the fire movement is that, that, you know, yeah. by the, by an index fund, live frugally and it'll pay off. But in your conference, since you get a lot of different varying people, mm -hmm. do you find other people who have had different or maybe weird approaches that have led them to that same goal? Oh, 100%. So I think the fastest way to reach FI is through real estate. Okay. It's something that I've chose not to do. I mean, I bought my primary residence, but I wouldn't consider myself an investor. Right. Um, but everyone that I know that has reached FI pretty quickly has done it through real estate. Um, gotcha. So that's definitely one angle. Also entrepreneurship. So I know you have a lot of self-employed and entrepreneurs that listen to this. One of my favorite speeches from the last economy conference that just happened in November um, was from Jeremy Schneider, who has the um, personal finance club. That's what he does now. But he built a tech company that he sold for $5 million. 
um, when he was like 34, 35, something like that. But the entire time he was building this company, he paid himself the lowest salary of anyone at the company uh, at $36,000 a year living in San Francisco. He lived off of that for more than a decade. And then boom, he hits financial independence by selling his company. So that is kind of an unconventional way to do it, but is absolutely a way to do it. Um, yeah. And then, you know, there's your typical mix of all of the above. I mean, there are people working W2 jobs that are doing the whole simple path to wealth thing, but then they're mm-hmm. also doing real estate, but then they also have a side hustle and a business. Um, so there's, there are tons of ways to do it. I think that there's no, from my perspective, there's no rules in the fire movement. Right. The only thing we all agree on is to spend below your means and to save and in- invest the difference. I mean, that's really the only common commonality. Um, And a lot of what we talk about is, yes, you know, money is a powerful tool. And what is like the different ways you can leverage this tool? But then ultimately, money is not the goal. The goal is to use money to create a life that you really love. And so at a certain point, you really have to start asking yourself more challenging questions rather than how do I reduce my expenses and increase my income and and invest the gap? Now you have to start asking yourself, what do I want to do with my time? Who do I want to spend it with? What do I want to create? Um, Because I think there's probably too many retirees sitting on a pile of money, not doing anything. (laughs) So, Especially if you retire young, that can't be your life, you know? And so we talk about a lot of that stuff too. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I mean, there's a million stories about people, my age or older, I'm, I'm in my early fifties who retire, but don't have a plan for it. Yeah. They get bored. Mm-hmm. They, uh, you know, really enjoy that first two months. They travel a little bit and then they end up being bored and having to go back to work because that feels like the only option. And that's really common and really unfortunate because like you say, you've spent your, m- most of your adult life saving for that, that magical yeah. day. And then if it turns out that, yeah, you don't know what you're going to do with all that time that it can be devastating. And, uh, Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. I think there is, a dark side of full autonomy over your time that not a lot of people talk about. Yeah. Um, self-employed people would understand it, yes. right? Because you don't, you spent most of your life having something external, putting some kind of pressure on you to dictate how you're going to use your time. Yep. And so I think there's kind of almost like a cognitive load when now it's all on you. Totally. And that's an adjustment. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, as a self-employed person, it, was a weird thing to go from, from, yeah, having everything was kind of mapped out for me. You know, mm-hmm. I had the corporate job to be here at a certain time. Uh, I had my corporate 401k, you know, we'll match you up to this amount. Everything was so kind of structured that when I became self-employed, it was, it was this kind of lost feeling kind of like that, you know, the dark side, like you're saying, it's like, yeah. okay, how, how am I going to motivate myself besides just keep, you know, paying the rent. And, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a difficult adjustment, but I believe that if you're self-employed and you have that experience of that autonomy, but with the, the mixture of kill what you eat and everything that goes along with it, I think it's a great step towards retirement. 100%. Yes. And I think if you're self-employed, you're, you will have more tools when you do retire. 
Yes. And this is something that I'm actually talking a lot about within the FIRE community. Uh, Most people pursuing FIRE, they're waiting to reach their FI number, which is 25 times your yearly expenses, you know, to be able to pull the plug on their full-time job. And I think that we have options way sooner than that. And we have the opportunity to start downshifting way before we ever reach our fine number. And that's kind of what I chose to do. Um, there's a flavor of fire uh, known as slow fi. Okay. And this is really about per- like prioritizing the journey versus just rushing towards a destination. And there's this question that um, another content creator posed within this kind of slow fi um, thought of what would you do if you could never retire, right? We all ask ourselves, what would we do when we retire? But what would you do if you could never retire, Because that means that you'd start making changes now, not dreaming for the day that you could pull the plug on your nine to five. And that's what I think most of us need to be doing. Um, I think for me, you know, some of the milestones that allowed me to kind of give myself permission to start making some big moves, um, I reached what's known as coast fi status. Okay. There's all this like lingo uh-huh. in the fire community <laughs> that's it. pretty annoying. So I apologize if I'm annoying no, I like people it. listening. But it's just a, a way, it's just some common uh verbiage that we can use that that other people in the movement understand. But really what coast fi status, all that really means is that you have enough in your retirement vehicles that it's going to grow to what you need through the wonderful power of compound interest at traditional retirement age. So right now I'm 35, you know, I was 33 when I quit my job, I had about 300 grand in investments in my retirement vehicles. So if I don't add one more penny to it and I don't touch it, it's going to grow over 30 years to what I need for traditional retirement. So basically the way I look at it is I front loaded my retirement savings and And that, what that allows me to do is, you know, I front loaded my retirement savings. I have about a year of a cash cushion. I got my business to a place where I'm not worried as much about me having to fund it, which I know we're going to talk about, Uh um, you know, funding a business and taking on debt and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I gave myself permission basically to reduce my income. And since my expenses are already so low, you know, I walked away from my corporate job, my income dropped about a hundred grand and I saw absolutely no change in my lifestyle because my need to save, I've already kind of hit those big milestones. And so all I really need to worry about is covering my expenses. Now, of course those expenses might change. Who knows what I'll decide to do in a year, five or 10 years. Right. But based on where I am today, I'm, I'm able to hit my expenses, like cover my expenses and then some very easily on one day a week of work, which to me feels like freedom without ever reaching financial independence. That's awesome. So do you, um, for the podcast, do you record uh, a week's worth of episodes in every, or once, once a week or how does that, what's your Yeah. So it takes me about four hours to do, um, seven episodes. And then I actually have a second, daily podcast with the same producers. It's a pilot, um, but I'm actually reading horoscopes. So it's true voice acting. Uh, They hired an astrologer that writes all the scripts and um, I get to use kind of a fun voice that I'm just reading horoscopes every day. So I have actually two daily shows. Um, They both take me about four hours a week to record. So I do it in like two half days. So usually Monday mornings and Wednesday mornings are when I'm, I'm recording my shows. 
Oh my God, the horoscope thing that, <laughs> so when I, as, as an entrepreneur, when I hear something that I know is just going to make print money, like it, it gives me the chills and that could take six months, Yeah, could take a year, right. could take two years. But that is going to be a moneymaker. Well, I hope so. I mean, again, it's the producers that own it. They're just paying. They pay me either way, regardless of what the show does, which is kind of good, you know, good for me that that's 1099 income for me. But um, what's interesting, because I asked them about their thought process and the business case for it, because they have a whole network of daily shows. And they said that most horoscope shows, you listen to everyone's horoscope in one episode. Right. And so this concept is it's actually 12 different shows. Perfect. Um, So you only listen to your horoscope. And the only um, competitor that does that is an exclusive with Spotify. So it's basically taking that concept and blowing it out to all of the other platforms, Um, which, you know, to our knowledge, it hasn't been done because it is a lot of work, but they really specialize and have the infrastructure to have a whole network of daily shows. And so they knew they had the capability to do it. And now we're just waiting for it to take off. So what's your sign? Uh, I'm Sagittarius. So you would, you would look up Sagittarius daily and you'll see it's produced by optimal living daily. And then you get to listen to me every day. Your future will thank you. I, uh, (laughs) I, I personally am not into astrology, but, but I, I know money when I smell money and that is going to be, that's going to be great. And the fact that there's however many millions of podcasts out there and there isn't a, a a specific, you know, Capricorn horoscope. Mm -hmm podcast out there yet that's just brilliant i love it okay so but back to back to fire yeah um quick question and we haven't talked about this but when i tell people i'm self-employed and i have invented products that have have done okay and people are always like oh yeah you know i have an idea for a product or you know Mm -hmm. i'd really love to go out on my own i feel like i have enough uh, experience that i could do consulting blah, blah 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 almost inevitably Everybody says the the one thing that stops them is health insurance. They're like, yeah, mm-hmm. but what do you do about yeah. health insurance? And they they talk to me like it's like they think it's going to cost them fifty grand a year to to remain insured, and so yeah. therefore they just kind of stick with their job and they don't even consider self employment. Right. And to them, I say, I say it's just part of the cost of doing business, and you can yep. go to an exchange, and it's not that big of a deal. I've been doing it yeah. for uh, eighteen years. But I would assume that also in the fire movement, people are like, oh, boy, I don't know if I could ever afford to retire before 65 because yeah. of the health care issue. Do you, do you hear that argument? It's a huge barrier. I would say that it is the number one reason why financially independent people do not quit their jobs. Okay. And in some ways, there are solutions for it. In other ways, depending on your situation, you could be right, right? It's very state-specific, number one. Right. So, like, for example, I'm in Ohio. So I have a pretty reasonable cost of health insurance. The first year I bought it, I bought a high-deductible plan for $285 a month. Okay. And I could invest in an HSA with that plan. Right. Um, the second year, it went up to 340 And who knows what it's going to be in the future, right? But I'm young. Right. I'm relatively healthy. I'm paying for it for just myself, right? So my life circumstances really allow me to say, eh, it's not a big deal. Now, if I lived in New York City where I had a really severe health condition that I was like very attached to certain specific doctors that I don't know if they'll be covered by switching insurance um, or if I'm already in a position where my health 
healthcare costs are a concern, even while I have health insurance and I'm working, um, you know, for an employer. Now that's a different situation, not saying that you can't solve for it, but it is going to be harder. You know, there's a lot of people that talk about geo arbitrage. So, you know, you retire from W2 work and then you move to a state where it's cheaper for health insurance. Now, a lot of people have family dynamics that don't allow them to do that. They're co-parenting with someone, right? It really is so highly dependent on your circumstances, your situation, the state you live in and, and your health. Um, but I will say that, you know, the health insurance and healthcare concern is always going to be a concern. Honestly, whether I had a full-time job or not, whether I had insurance through my employer or not, if I had some kind of, you know, catastrophic event where even with health, health insurance, half the time you have to pay that, like beg them to pay what they, what you're entitled to. Right. Um, there was an incredible speech at the economy conference. So uh, granted, I'm, I'm constantly like plugging economy here, no, but no, it's because the content is so good. Um, so we had a medical billing fraud investigator present. It was an amazing presentation. Wow. And what she found over 20 years of data is that nine out of 10 medical bills have errors. It is the only thing that we buy that it is impossible to figure out how much it's going to cost before you ever actually have any kind of healthcare needs met, right? It's not like that in other countries, by the way. If you go to Canada and you ask them, how much is it, how much is it going to be for this cesarean section? They'll tell you right there. It's going to be $1,200, right? $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, I mean, it's, it's not that it has, it has to be this way. It is very unique to our country. Um, and so she walked, you know, through this whole medical billing problem. Uh, fraud problem. It's an $80 billion problem that no one's talking about. And there are four main types of billing billing fraud to look out for and to investigate. And the first order of operations is to document everything medically that you have happened or have an advocate with you that can document. How many IVs did you have in you? Because they might be charging you for six when you only had one. I mean, that's a pretty common one, right? And so you... I could go on and on about this because I find it fascinating, but you can watch this entire speech on the Economy Conference YouTube channel. Her name is Angel Salucci. Um, And you can find her on my channel uh, talking about what to do about medical billing fraud, which to me is... um, goes hand in hand with this question of what do we do about health insurance? Because again, even if you have health insurance, um, you know, one of my other friends within the community, she had a brain tumor at 28 that even with health insurance, she paid over a hundred grand and it wiped oh, out, it wiped her out. You know, okay. she's still retired by 39, by the way, um, because she was saving such a large percentage of her income, which is to me, the huge benefit in, in what the fire movement, you know, really promotes in living below your means, but like try to live way below your means if you can, because then you open up a lot of different options. Um, but yeah, I mean, she had a brain tumor at 28. She had to learn to walk again and everything. And, uh, you know, even with health insurance, that was a hundred grand for her. So, um, I kind of feel like regardless of if you have a full-time job or not, it's always going to be a concern. I think we, we need to take care of ourselves as much as we can. Um, and you know, do the best we can with the system that we're in and, and hope that, you know, one day it's going to get better or we can leave the country. That's another thing that people do. I mean, they, they leave the country specifically because of the healthcare concern. Right. Right. Interesting. Okay. 
Generationally, uh, and I'm I again something that we haven't talked about. You're 35 years old. I yeah. every day I see, and I'm not this boomer that says, you know, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Everything's you know just as easy as it was when I was a kid and all that. But I every day I'll see a meme come through or something about how, you know, average wages have gone up by. 10% in the last 40 years, but rents have gone up by 4X, you know, mm -hmm. it's not avocado toast that's the problem. It's it's, yeah. it's the economy and whatnot. And I realized that homeownership is definitely harder to get into. Mm -hmm. What What's the average age of the people at your conference and how many of them, what's the sentiment? Is it like, do they feel like they're fighting an impossible uphill battle where they're victims or do they feel like they're empowered and they have every possibility of financial sovereignty? And um, yeah. so this was a terribly worded question, but where are they in that if you're totally empowered on one side or yeah. you're a total victim and where, where do these people live? Right. Um, so I would say average age, the bulk of the audience is between 35 and 50, though, you know, okay. of course, we've got outliners to that. Um, I mentioned that about 20% of the audience is already financially independent and retired. They skew on the older side. Um, okay. The bulk of us, about 70% of the audience are in what I call the accumulation phase, right? Like we're plugging along. We're pretty money savvy, but mostly we're coming to kind of fuel the fire and keep that inspiration and, and surround ourselves with other people that are doing this. Um, I, one of the things that really drew me to the fire movement was the optimism. Everything okay. that I had read about money prior to this was very much had this tone of struggle to it, right? Like it's going to feel like deprivation to decrease your expenses and you just got to struggle through it and grin and bear it. And it's all going to be hard, but this is what you need to do. Like right. put your big girl pants on and just suck it up and do it. Right. And that didn't really resonate with me. Okay. Um, what I liked about the fire movement is it really helped me kind of recognize my privilege, to be honest. I think most of us not most of us, probably most of us listening to this are far more privileged than we want to admit. Oh, yeah. We live in a first world country, you know, and I don't think that fire is the solution to like systemic poverty, right? Obviously there are systematic issues that are outside of my control, mm. right? But there's a lot that's also within my control. And it actually took me a long time, like through my 20s, I didn't know anything about money. The only thing that I knew was that I just got to increase my income. If I could make six figures, I'll be fine. That's what I knew about money is just make more of it, right? right? Um, no one ever told me about you know, the gap between your income and, and your expenses is really where wealth is built. And so money management was my ultimate problem, not my income. Right. But when I came from it at that kind of victim mentality, I blamed it on my income. And I think that what we like to do in the fire movement, and I can't speak for the whole movement. I'm one person that resonates with it, right? I'm not a spokesperson for the fire movement. It's no one owns it, right? It's a collection right. of people with kind of um, similar ideals, but there's a lot of variety within it. Um, I think for me, it helped me really focus on the things that I can control and develop a really um, deep appreciation for the material abundance that I already have. Because if you mm -hmm. think about consumerism, you know, we have been bred 
you know, conditioned since birth to be consumers. That's what makes our economy what it is, right? Spend money, spend money, get the bigger house, get the new car. You know, it is, it is, we are really conditioned to want that. And I think it takes a lot of intentionality to say, not only am I not going to buy the Tesla, but I actually don't want the Tesla, There's a huge difference between those two things, because if you're not doing something, but you still desire it, it's going to feel like deprivation. If you're not doing something because it's your actual preference, that totally changes the game because you can't sell something to someone unless you convince them first that there's some lack. And so for me, I live really minimally, you know, I, the bank wanted to give me a huge mortgage based on my six figure income when I had my corporate career, but I chose a house that I bought for 150,000. My mortgage is $600 a month. My total expenses are around $2,000 a month because I live super minimally. I bought a car for $6,000 cash that I love. You know, I, I think learning to enjoy kind of the simple things in life, living minimally gives you a lot of time and space to kind of do other things besides shopping. <laughs> I guess you could right. say like you could use your money to buy stuff or you can mu- use your money to buy space in your life. And and I don't know, to me, that's made a huge difference. And also recognizing that a lot of what we find as hardships are actually first world problems. So like, for example, you know, when I was getting out of debt now, before I knew anything about money, I was 28 years old, not even that long ago. Right. I was, I was making fine money living in New York city. I was 30 grand in debt for no reason, just from living outside my means. And one of the things that I did is focus on like the food aspect. Cause I was never much like buying purses and clothes and shoes and that kind of thing. It was much more like going out and partying sure, and like yeah. going out to dinner every night, drinks with colleagues every night, that kind of thing. And so I started cooking every meal that I ate and people would like, it was blowing everyone around me. Like it was blowing their minds, you know, like, oh my gosh, that seems like such a hassle to cook all of your food. And it's like, rather than seeing that as a burden, why don't I switch my focus to the appreciation that I am physically able to make my own food, that I can walk to the grocery store, that there's a grocery store within walking distance to me. You know, it's, it's, I really think it's what you put your attention on. And if you can foster this deep appreciation for what you already have, you curb the desire for more. And that to me has been a big part of my journey. Okay. Uh, those are all pearls of true wisdom that anyone, including people my age, uh, could greatly benefit from. And I spend far too much money on eating in restaurants. And I mm-hmm. admit it. And I've done well about um, kind of curbing that. But that's a huge thing. And when I think about when I was 28, the amount of social lunches that I had with workmates, I mean, if I would have made my own lunches and put that money towards a, a Roth, I, I, my life would be different now. Uh, so those are, are words of wisdom. And uh, I hope that everyone absorbed that because that's huge. Uh, one other question. As you prepare for the the fire movement, I'm I'm intrigued by by this phenomenon, and especially because you have people who are on the other side of it. And yeah. You said 20 percent of your uh, conference attendees are mm-hmm. retired. 
as more and more time passes that I am get better at investing and better at saving and better at socking money away and better at, mm-hmm. at putting it to work rather than blowing it, I'm building this muscle where I don't want to spend it. And I yeah. don't want to spend it on myself. And I will wear this same shirt that I have three of these same shirts and I won't get a new one until this one is frayed and I become cheaper and more uh, frugal uh, mm-hmm. with each passing year. And that muscle that I'm building up, when the day comes when I'm 59 and a half on, on, on June 3rd, uh, 2028, when I retire – I don't know if it's going to short circuit my brain to yeah. switch from that accumulation mode to the coasting and living on what I have accumulated. Yes. Do do, do you do people that you talk to have that issue and how do they make the jump? 100% um, okay. drawdown from a nest egg is really, really hard, especially when you've yeah. spent decades accumulating it, right? Yes. Like you just have in your mind, I never want to touch that. Um, I think that the thing that helps a lot of people is like there's tons of calculators and modeling uh, tools out there that kind of help you see, you know, if you're drawing down at a 4% rate or maybe it helps you, you know, if it's 3.5% or 3.25% right. or whatever Morningstar recently said, right? Those are guidelines and rules of thumb. Obviously, you know, if you want to go and like reassess that every year based on your yes. situation. And um, it's funny because we, I was just at another event where uh, we had a presentation on drawdown strategies and the gentleman presenting it had this exact problem and he actually had too much money. I think he retired at like 50. Um, and so like between, you know, 50 and, and well, 55 to 65 is like that sweet spot where you want to, you know, if you retire, you want to be doing your Roth conversions and all of that. And even with him, like doing these aggressive, like trying to do the tax optimization and all of that, like he just still had too much money, um, in, in his tax optimized accounts. And, So, you know, I, it, again, this is a good problem to have, like to have right. too much money that you're not, okay, whatever. Uh, but one of the things he said, and and he was actually in a really unique position to talk about this because, you know, probably about five years after he retired, um, his wife died of cancer, oh, very shit. young. Okay. And so, you know, they had this whole plan of saving their nest egg to be able to retire together. And now that plan just got blew blew up. And so his big message to the group was, yes, you want to preserve your future, but not at the expense of today. And you want to enjoy your life today, but not at the expense of your future. And that's a really delicate balance. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a really tough game to play. But I think that you know, recognizing you don't want your whole working life to be this struggle and sacrifice for this end goal of retirement when, you know, you could be at an age where your health is failing, you could die young, you could, you know, not a a global pandemic could happen and ruin all of your travel plans. Who knows? Right. And so I think um, one thing that's talked about a lot within the fire movement is almost mini retirements and sabbaticals along the way. Right. Not like, And that's kind of more in like the slow fi flavor, right? And that's something that I did. So in 2017, 
Um, I took a two month unpaid sabbatical from work and I went and walked the Camino in Spain, which is a um, 500 mile trek across northern Spain. It took me 38 days to walk across a country. And I did that at 30 years old. That's a life experience that many other people on the trail were doing it in traditional retirement. And they were doing it with knee replacements and hip replacements. Like I feel so fortunate that I got to experience that when I was younger um, because that shaped a lot of how I'm building my life now and the things that I'm interested in now. It kind of like threw a wrench into a lot of things that I thought I knew about myself, you know? And so um, there's a great book. I feel like I'm I'm bouncing around a little bit, but there's... There's a great book called Die With Zero, where he talks oh, yeah. about this subject um, and really encourages people, if you die with a million dollars or $2 million, great. Yeah. I mean, you can pass that on to your kids, but hopefully you've already you know, taught your kids enough about money that they're self-sufficient, right? I mean, I yeah. personally, I hope my mom doesn't leave me inheritance. I don't plan to leave anyone an inheritance. Our money is is for us, right? Mm-hmm. To to take care of ourselves. And I know not, not everyone agrees with that. Um, but, you know, if you die with a million dollars, that means that that's a million dollars of life you didn't live. And so I think when you, what this, what this issue is really getting at the root of is looking at money as the goal versus the tool, right? There's this great Ayn Rand quote where she says, um, money is a tool. It will take you wherever you want to go, but it won't replace you as the driver. And I look at it, I look at it as in a similar vein. If you look at money as a hammer, We talk so much on shows like this about how do you acquire the hammer? Where do you store the hammer? What are the features of the hammer, right? The pretty box that we're going to put that hammer in. Well, you know what? If you never pick up that hammer and swing it and build something with it, then what's the point of having it? Right. Right? I mean, we need a certain amount of money to give us a financial security and to make us feel safe. And that number is different depending on who you are and what your circumstances are. But at a certain point, if you're just going to hoard your money and you're not going to do anything with it, then it's kind of like, what's the point of having it? Yeah, that uh, I am feeling myself becoming more and more that person who will end up with a whole bunch left over. And that's not, that's not. Yeah. And I think it's also like, what do you really value that you feel is worth spending money on? Because even if you're frugal, it just means you're more discerning. You still like things, right? And so for me, I love going to events. I mean, it's a big reason why I created one. And I spend a ton of money, which is now a business expense, right? Going to events, um, some of which are very expensive. So for example, World Domination Summit. I mean, I'm someone that cooks every single meal that I eat, unless I'm traveling, of course. But that ticket is $700. I mean, that's a pretty expensive ticket for someone who's fairly frugal. But it is worth every penny to me because it aligns, it aligns with my values. And so, you know, I kind of like the Ramit Sethi saying where he says, you know, 
cut mercilessly in the areas that you don't value and spend lavishly in the things you do value. So you don't care about your clothes on the same way. I don't care about my clothes. I think I really like living in a small house because I think there's a lot of value in keeping your highest fixed expenses as low as possible. And so I don't really desire a big expensive house. I don't really care about cars, but I care about people and I care about spending time with people. So I'm going to spend a lot of money in, in that area. So I think maybe even there's another book called design your life, um, by a couple Stanford professors. There's a YouTube video that, um, has a couple of their exercises in there, but it's basically using, you know, traditional design principles to figure out how to design your actual life. And it really helps you narrow in and how do you like spending your time and what do you actually value so that, you know, it's probably going to be easier to spend money in that way. Um, versus, you know, on stuff you don't care about. Right. Fascinating. Well, I think that is actually a great um, place to stop here because um, I think intentionality and the, the, the more focus we can put on don't let your money control you, control your money, the more that we can have, uh, uh, how best to put this, to think of it as that hammer and how we're going to be actually using that rather than just thinking of it as a number that is growing mm-hmm. and, and, and a chart and what percentage and thinking of it as an actual, how it will be used, I think is uh, is a huge thing that we could all probably do better at. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Diana, this was an awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. I could probably talk to you all night about this <laughs> stuff. But um, in the meantime, uh, just once again, can you just tell our audience where they can find out more about you and what you do? Absolutely. So you can listen to me every single day on the Optimal Finance Daily Podcast. I like to say that these great bloggers wrote these amazing songs and I get to perform the covers. So you can listen to me there. Um, You can also join me at the next economy conference. It's happening in Cincinnati, um, March 17th through 19th of 2023. And tickets are available now, which you can check out at economyconference.com. And remember, economy is with that M-E at the end rather than an MY. Awesome. Well, Diana, thank you so much. And I, uh, maybe in another six months, maybe you come back and we can talk some more. Absolutely. would love to. Okay. That'd be great. All right. Well, I will talk to you soon. And once again, it's the economy conference and that's happening March 17th through the 19th uh, in Cincinnati in 2023. And I will talk to you later. Awesome. Thanks so much. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com. 